This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, Craig, it's Andrew. Hi, Andrew, it's Craig. Cool. <laughs> if you're overdue... <laughs> cool beans. Hey, if you're overdue on adding another podcast to your listening queue, then I'd highly recommend checking out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by the Poglomerate. While Missing Pages just returned for a brand new season, it has already received high praise from The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Podcast Review, just to name a few. On this new season, host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick investigates the publishing industry's hot-button topics with the help of special guests like Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot and Slate columnist Laura Miller. Looking for somewhere to start? I'd recommend listening to their Banned Books series, which features a special interview with New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico on her own experience with book banning. They also take a step back to look at the current state of book banning in America, unpacking the question, is there more nuance to book censorship than is at the surface? Did you ever think about that, Craig? I, I think about that sometimes. I do, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody go ahead listen to missing pages on apple Podcasts, spotify or your favorite listening app Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Welcome to our <laughs> podcast where we read a book every week and one of us tells the other person about it. And also every week we change sort of the inflection and, and the places in words where we emphasize them too, yes. just to keep just to make the, inf- the listening experience fresh and interesting for everybody. If you come to this podcast looking for relaxation with a familiar voice uh sorry <laughs> here's a familiar voice doing weird stuff i'm just which is good because i didn't have any like funny ideas for the intro this week so i'm glad that you did this i'm just muddling through that's the real mm-hmm. lyric that everybody likes we'll right? muddle through somehow yes it's at that time of year when december 18th everybody <laughs> you read a great book that's what happened it's to me beginning to look a lot like December 18th. <laughs> Books yeah, in every year. <laughs> so this can, week. Do you think we can update the reference from like five and 10 to, I don't know, a kind of store that's existed in the last 90 years? Well, I would have said Rite Aid, but all the Rite Aids are going out of business. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Woolworths mm-hmm. was five and 10, five and dimes. Mm-hmm. You ever been to a Woolworths? In, as no, a kid? I don't think so. I once watched a video of the video game Cool Spot demoing <laughs> in a Woolworths. <laughs> and it's and I can't believe a store that would focus on Cool Spot like that would eventually go out of business. That's that's wild to me. All right, Craig, what'd you read this week for our book podcast? A relevant to everything we've just said, I read the book Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. A bit on my TBR list for a while here i watched it given as a gift 
among multiple people in my life. I heard mm-hmm. about the acclaim. It's a National Book Award finalist in the finals in the NBA. You know how it is. I like this this picture of you just like standing across a room, sort of looking at people giving gifts at each other. <laughs> and one of them's Pachinko. Like maybe you're looking in someone's window and just be like, listen, oh man, it's Pachinko again. Listen, man, I was at a holiday party today <laughs> and someone was describing Goodreads to someone else. And I, I just... Thankfully, Simon wanted to run all over the place, so I just quietly left the room. Mm-hmm. You I, didn't get to the part where like a lot of people decide that they're going to write reviews in character as like their cat or whatever. No, <laughs> like all my all love to all the Goodreads using listeners out there. Got like some of y'all, some of y'all got bits. Yep, <laughs> and well, you're sticking to them. And, and and bless these people talking about it. They were just like excited to talk about books, and they were mm-hmm. excited to share tools for recording what they've read. But like. Mm-hmm. My brain's broken, and so I had to leave. Yeah, um, and I wasn't there with my guitar, so you couldn't like talk about I, the it, I, the I, number of the number of stars that is sometimes assigned to reviews of books on Goodreads. Lady was talking about a book that she had read and logged on book Goodreads, and I literally tried to speak and I couldn't because there was no music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but no, this is book. Uh, yeah, I've seen it given as a gift, and uh, I logged it away for the future. Yes, this is on my this is on my to be watched list. Oh, I knew but it was a, to watch it was a, a book. <laughs> well, you can. It's not very interesting. <laughs> um, it was a it was adapted into a show on Apple TV Plus sure. in 2022. Okay. As an I, I've so I watched the first episode of it finally as research for this episode. So oh, we you're welcome. Talk about it a little bit. Um, there's always for whatever reason there's always an extra like mental hurdle for me to clear. When it comes to watching a show with subtitles, because obviously, like in this house, subs not dubs. But also subs in this dubs. house, we do things while we watch TV. <laughs> yes, also that. So, like, it's hard to be like, okay, I'm going to learn how to refinish a chair or learn everything about Pokemon cars or like whatever the stupid thing that my brain is doing to me. It's hard to do that and pay attention to subtitles. Yeah, sure. But so thank you, you carve for finally, out the focus. Yes, finally getting me to, to focus on the show and watch it, even though I had to keep pausing it so I could talk to you about how I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, spoiler alert, I like the book. Spoiler alert, you blank the TV show. I like the TV show. One episode in. Though, yeah, I might. So I was reading a, an interview with Minjin Lee, and she, like, it's a New Yorker interview. We'll probably link it on social alert or whatever sometime this week. Um, talking, so she initially started on the Pachinko show as an executive producer, but by the time this New Yorker interview ran in February of 2022, she was no longer attached to it and did not want to talk about it. Oh, wow. So it does make me feel a little weird about the, about the TV show, but it was, it was acclaimed. Um, I've, I've been recommended it by both professional and non-professional TV people. Okay. Um, so I am, I, I will finish it, but. Yes, sure. I'd keep, I guess keep that in the back of your mind while we talk about the TV show. I think that is what Minjin Lee wants us to see by Michael Luo, just to since that we're dropping this up at the top. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, this is only her second novel. Her first novel is Free Food for Millionaires, but this is the first novel I had heard of hers, mm-hmm. um, and so I knew nothing else about her. What What do we need to know about her, Andrew? Uh, Min Jin Lee was born in 1968. Uh, she was originally born in South Korea and immigrated with her family here uh, when she was seven. She immigrated to to New York and has lived there sort of on and off uh, for the rest of her life. She, like she went to she went to Yale 
Um, she referred to in that interview uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, as quote the promised land. <laughs> oh boy, big ups Bergen. <laughs> I mean, she she talked a lot in that interview about um about how she she had a as a as a seven year old she had a vision of America in her mind as this like glamorous place where everybody's wearing ball gowns everywhere. Oh sure, yes, and we were. Says, and then I realized that it looks just like Seoul. Except with non-Korean people, I remember thinking it was so ugly. I lived in such an ugly little hovel and talked about her, you know, her, her, my mother was a piano teacher. My father was a white collar executive at a cosmetics company. Not, not an uncommon immigrant experience. I think where people who are like, you know, valued professionals in the place where they came from are, are doing sort of paycheck to paycheck like subsistence level work in, they were in the United States working in a uh, or owning a, a jewelry store a, ju- yeah, a newsstand yeah. in a jewelry store I think was the the progression of things that her her dad owned but yeah they just they save money and eventually they moved to, to New Jersey and, and things went from there um so yeah she uh like I said uh studied at Yale she was a corporate lawyer for like a couple of years Okay. Uh, in the in the mid '90s, and then quit. I think this th- this was partly because she was dealing with a chronic form of hepatitis B. Oh boy! Uh, that was like a doctor had told her that she was probably going to get liver cancer and die. Oh my like, god! Young. Yeah, and so she she says I felt like I had to get all this done. I didn't feel terrified of quitting being a lawyer because I felt like, well, if I'm dead, I'm going to write this book, and then I'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and so she's I mean obviously still alive, obviously still working, uh but she, you know, she she decided, you know, if I she, she I mean she got married young also she she just decided if if I'm going to be chased around by the specter of death for however long I'm alive, I might as well do something that's like fulfilling to yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Um so she she does this in the mid 90s, doesn't publish uh, free food for millionaires until 2007 and then doesn't publish pachinko until 2017 and these are her only two novels that exist right now she's working on a third um that is called oh, american hagwon american hagwon yeah and she, she views this as like part of a trilogy of books that she's kind of doing about various ex- aspects of the of the korean experience yep um but she had, you know, both of these books are published to good reviews and, and good sales. She talks about her writing process just being extremely research heavy. Yep. Uh, her two books filled, quote, more than 10 bankers boxes with interview notes and other background material. She says, I read secondary material. I read academic material. I read scholarship. And then I also do numerous interviews of experts and subjects. Uh, when asked why she why she writes in this way, she says, the answer is confidence. It's the confidence I don't have when I begin something. I have so much insecurity about the stuff that I don't know. And by the time I finish my research, I'm like, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watched an interview with her uh, on, the, on the, the YouTube channel for the Weatherhead East Asian Institute uh, that people can go like Google her name in that YouTube channel. You'll find it. She talks a little bit about her process with this novel, but she also talks about like, there's there's a scene in this novel uh, that takes place, I think, in the 60s or 70s. May, I don't think it's early 80s, where like a 14-year-old boy has to get... He's been born in Japan, but he's ethnic Korean, and so he has to go get his like foreign registration card on his 14th birthday. He has to get fingerprinted, and his dad is like a super rich pachinko magnate, mm-hmm. and she is like trying to... 
spell out still how much of a like third class citizen Koreans are in Japan at this time. Yeah. And she says in that interview, she's like, uh, but in 1993, there's this big, you know, upheaval and and some of the laws change and people are protesting, but the book only takes place from 1910 to 1989. So I needed to know that, but you, the reader, never needed to know that. Yeah. And to your point, I think that's like the research gives her the confidence to say, here's what the reader does and doesn't need to know, which is well, interesting. It gives, yeah. her, gives her the confidence to like, as somebody who didn't live through it, to capture a a period in Korean history from the point of view yeah. of someone who, who didn't who, sure. who lived through it and who like didn't know what was coming, you know? Yeah. Well, oh, well she said that interview. So the book spans 1910 to 1989. And she says that 1989 is when she first truly learned about the experience of Koreans in Japan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the Zainichi, I think is like the Korean, one of the terms for Koreans in Japan. Um, and she says, like, so for me, I stopped the book there so that I could like had a good hard line to work against that wouldn't overlap with my own experience in the yeah. world, which is interesting. It's and it's it's it just reminded me of something that I do when I'm researching articles sometimes when I'm when I'm writing is uh You're a professional you writer, yeah. Yes, yeah. I don't talk about it a lot because I'm insecure about a lot of things, but anyway. If I don't know if you know that Google among its like search tools, and I'm not gonna like stick up for the quality of Google search results right now, but just talking about it as like a snapshot of the internet. Sure. Uh, if you search for something and then you click on tools up there, there is an option to search through date range. Oh. And so, especially if you're trying to research background on like a newer development that just happened. If you want to take a snapshot of the internet that existed like before this newer thing broke or, you know, whatever the scuttlebutt was about a thing like five years ago that doesn't also include newer information, you can set a date like boundary of like, you know, 2017, 2018 or whatever. And it it makes it much easier to uncover like contemporaneous coverage of a a thing. So, yeah, I just thought I'd just just tickle my brain. Andrew, this is like. What what episode of our show is this? Six hundred and and you're telling me this now? This feels like a useful tip this? for me, your co-host. <laughs> I mean, if I give everybody all my useful tips, I'm not gonna have a job anymore. There's not that many of these. We're all just all the media people are just clinging to these logs that are floating in the ocean. That's actually no, but that's really useful. I'm glad We're all just floating that. on doors like in Titanic, and we can't let another person up on the doors, Craig. <laughs> A few quick hits on um, just this book and its genesis. There's a and chime in from the interview that you read, Andrew. I have stuff mm-hmm. from the edition that I read had an afterword that she wrote, as well as like an interview that has some quotes in it. Um, so what I've gleaned is that you know she had been working on a version of this story since the late 1980s when she heard a story about a Korean student who took his own life after some extreme racist bullying and hatred in Japan. Um, a version of that story makes its way into this novel, which we can talk about. Uh, and it kind of stuck with her forever, and she worked on versions of it as early as 1996. Uh, a story called Motherland, um, about a Korean-Japanese boy who gets his foreign identity card, is like the mm-hmm. first iteration of it. Um, some of that, versions of that story, and I think a version of the of the 
boy who took his own life also like kind of win her some early fellowships which like help build her career and then um in 2007 she moves to tokyo uh and tosses out whatever existing manuscript she had of this novel after starting her research meeting with korean japanese folks and uh just found that their experience was much more nuanced and complex than she had thought i think her initial take as she puts it was she was writing mostly from the perspective of some of this boy solomon who's mm-hmm. kind of enters later in the novel and he he's a guy who goes away to america and studies and then comes back and that's pretty is one of the closer perspectives to her own i think and through extensive interviews with folks in Japan, she's like, no, 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 okay, I got to start. I got to go back to 1910. I got to toss out all the stuff that I did mm-hmm. um, and just has to, you know, get that confidence, as you said. So sure. the, one of the three books, quote-unquote, that this novel is divided into, I think, um, is called motherland and that might be where, where some of that comes from so. sure i think i think the only other thing to kind of talk about up front before we break is uh this book like at least part of it uh takes place against the backdrop of uh like japan uh korea the korea the japanese occupation of korea yes need, uh-huh. need a second to sneak up on yeah that. for sure uh, in korea it's also this is a translation but it's it's referred to I think usually as the Imperial Japanese Compulsive Occupation Period. Oh, okay. Uh, this runs from 1910 to 1945, um, and I think like you know just just reading about it at a high level, you know, I think my, my impulse is to be you know colonialism sucks. It sucks that there are a lot of people in Japan, including the music composer for the Dragon Quest series, who were like you know when when Japanese officials you know coerced young. Korean women into uh, performing sex acts. It was empowering for those women. Like it's it's super. It's it, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad that that there exists in the world people who think stuff like that. I I just I reading in that that New Yorker interview with Lee. I think there's just like a there's one like interesting note that we can yeah sure. And don't like I think we can broadly agree like colonialism bad. I don't think we don't yeah, we don't have to find nuance in that. No, 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 no. But but Lee is talking about how, you know, her her thing as we've discussed a little bit is figuring out how the people themselves would have felt yep. about the thing. Sure. And she so she is talking about how Koreans view this period. Um, and she says, and this is, I just, I recognize myself in her initial response. It was specifically very important for me with the Koreans in Japan because I started out in the position of, oh, these are poor victims who have been oppressed yes. by colonialism and how horrible. And that's all true, but they didn't see it that way. And they told me, you're wrong. And I was like, well, okay, how am I wrong? When you hang out with them, you realize they're quite, the word in Japanese is they're very genki. They're very sturdy and strong. So I thought, oh, well, where did that come from? And I realized it's kind of like what Hemingway says about being broken, right? You're stronger when you're broken. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've got, you know, I've got, compli- I, I think that all ties into complicated ideas about, uh, I don't know, like whether trauma, like you need to experience trauma to make like great art or like whether, you know, some kind of hardship or oppression is sort of necessary to make, you strong as a person like that's that's very that's complicated i'm not ready to unpack that (laughs) but i just i thought in this in this context that perspective was just important to keep in the the background of our yeah you know conversation for sure i think so 
Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a break, and then I can tell you about what is in the pages of the book and my experience of reading it. Okay. Hi, Andrew. It's Craig again. Whoa, still? Again? Me, always. <laughs> okay, uh-oh. <laughs> and I am here with the perfect bookish podcast recommendation for you. It's called Missing Pages. It's Ooh. hosted by renowned literary critic and publishing insider Beth Ann Patrick, and it's back for a brand new season. Produced by the award-winning firm The Podglomerate, Missing Pages features some of the biggest names in the book world today, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico, Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot, and Slate columnist Laura Miller. Each episode, these lit heroes sit down with Beth Ann to set the record straight on the industry's pressing topics, including book bans in America and the various scammers impacting writing communities across the world. Scammers, Andrew! Whoa! I didn't know that they were out there. Oh, scammers boy. are everywhere. I should I shouldn't be so naive. I need that's to listen how, to this that's, podcast. It's how they get you, and it's also why we have the phrase "That's how they get you." It's because <laughs> scammers scammers are all around us. If you don't know where to start with missing pages, I would highly recommend listening to the first episode of the season, the Colleen Hoover story. It's a compelling look at Hoover's rise to stardom and explores the central question: Is her career a sign of a changing literary landscape where book publishers are losing their power as the industry gatekeepers? As the Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a, quote, must listen, and I couldn't agree more. So go ahead, listen to Missing Pages wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Andrew. All right, Craig. Where would you like to start? I'm, you know, I am not actually an expert on this novel, but as as these episodes unfold, the person who read the book is the closest thing to an expert is the on relative it. expert. We we deal in relativity here at Overdue. So, uh, to use a Reddit term, ask me anything <laughs> about the novel Pachinko. You should do that. It's like I read the novel Pachinko AMA. What's <laughs> like the lowest stakes, least interesting AMA you could possibly try to start? And you know when they publish when they like publicize them like oh my god you know somebody's gonna be a doing a, colonel sanders is doing an ama in three hours you gotta get there like some dude in philadelphia read a book uh-huh. log on to reddit now <laughs> okay so let's talk about structure first yeah please think, because my understanding is that the book is like split into three acts basically yes that, that each chronologically cover a different span of time. Yes, there is Goyang or Hometown, Motherland, and Pachinko. Uh, as we said, the like the full novel runs nineteen ten to nineteen eighty nine. The first book ends at nineteen thirty three. The mm-hmm. second book ends at nineteen sixty two, and the last book ends at nineteen eighty nine. Is okay. that a Taylor Swift album? Yeah. Wait, or is it? Yes, yes, it yes, is. Yes, I. Yes. There are no references it meant, to Taylor cut Swift out, in cut the out, novel. Keep in the part where I answered immediately and confidently <laughs> that 1989 is definitely a Taylor Swift album, and then cut out the part where I needed to make sure that it was in my head. 
Because one of them makes us sound way more with it. I'm the one who asked the question. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah but, but I get to look smart is yes, my point. Fair enough. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. So those are the three books, and they trace... Uh, I've seen it described as four generations of a family, and I think I sort of would say it's all it's like four and a half generations mm-hmm. of a family mm-hmm. through that era. Um, we have... The first like named character we meet is this guy named Huni, mm-hmm. um, living in Yudong, uh, I think, um, Korea, and uh, Yang Jin, who is the woman that he marries, and then we have his parents, who is like the previous like half generation, I would say, like they're not a big part of the story. Sure. Uh, then their the next generation is their daughter Sunja, um, and a she marries a guy um, named Isak uh, Baek. Um, who's a who's a minister, but she also has a relationship with a guy named Ko Hanzu, and Hanzu is oh boy, he's a he's a shady character. We'll talk about Hanzu, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she has two sons, uh, Noah or Noya, and Mozashu, um, or Mozashu, and uh, and then Mozashu has a son named Solomon, who we meet, who is like the last generation. There's there's other mm-hmm. people within that kind of ladder of generations but, but like the, those are the ones that the stories turn on. yeah and those are all the ones that are related i think an interesting thing that lee does throughout the book is like we'll pull in members of e- like non-related people who become part of the story and thus can represent other aspects of the korean experience Within each age group, even mm-hmm. so that she doesn't have to contain every experience within just this family, which I, mm-hmm. I think is really smart. Yeah. Um, but what was, what was your question about structure or or if you want to compare it to the TV show? Because I, I think really some people a, might be coming to this book purely from the TV show. Yeah, right. Like I, di- I didn't have a question so much as I just wanted to compare the the way that stories are told and kind of use that as a jumping off point yeah, to sure. talk about what the story is. I think so when you, so when you have a book where you have a especially a book where you have a bunch of sort of discrete separate narrative chunks but they're all like in communicate they're all in communication with each other i think yeah. the easiest way to adapt it for tv and the way that the pachinko show chooses to adapt them is just to intersperse them and sure. that, i, th- I think yeah. that's that's makes sense a lot of a lot of that is done for expedience so that you know in episode 7 the show doesn't need to like do some kind of Yes. Uh, like contrived flashback or like echo of, of a voice thing yep. to make the audience remember, oh, hey, thematically, this recalls a thing that happened in episode two. <laughs> sure. Yes. Uh, so so the show opens in 1910 um, and then cuts back and forth between this 1910 era and the 1980s era. Um, and then I, I'm not sure... Because so, I only watched the first episode, I'm not. I'm not sure how much the 1910 era comes back. Like, how how much are are these all like equally sized chunks of of book, or are they you know do do some eras get more attention than others? Ooh, I did not do the math. That's so okay. I, I if, if, like, if you if you don't have an immediate impression, then maybe because because the 1910 era part of the show could be done after episode one. I'm not. I'm not sure yet because it, you know, it. it talks about 
I think that, that feels um, like it could be true, even if it isn't true. Yeah, like, like it, it it looks at Sanjay's um her you know young childhood and her relationship with her dad and a little bit with her mom and then ends with her dad dying of i mean okay. it's not it's not said in the show that it's tuberculosis but i know from reading other research yep. that it's yep. tuberculosis tuberculosis um and then at the very end of that episode it flashes forward nine years from that to to start talking about her adulthood yeah instead sure. yep um so yeah I, I don't know how often the show will like jump back and forth but in the first episode it's definitely like here's the past here's the future and it's and those two things are happening in in conversation with each other. Like you'll see old Sunjaya, and she'll be dealing with something like Solomon is messing up, like cooking something, and it'll go back in time to like her and her mom like preparing food or something. Like I, it, yeah, yeah, it makes perfect. Listen, I watched the first several seasons of This Is Us. I know what it is to do <laughs> to interweave timelines for narrative import. I get yeah. it. Yeah, just um, who will the crockpot kill next? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Um, but poor that guy from Heroes and Gilmore Girls. Um, anyway, I'm just gonna go over to the sign. <laughs> Craig it's mentioned been X, X number Heroes. of days since Craig mentioned mentioned the show Heroes. I'm gonna flip it back specifically to season one. I don't talk you, about you it. Had, you had there weren't very many days on that board already, and then you did it again. It's been zero <laughs> days since Craig mentioned the show Heroes season one. Uh-huh. Um but yes the the novel does not do any jumping back and forth. I think it is so the first line of the novel is history has failed us uh but no matter. The uh-huh. the uh is not there. That was me editorializing. Um history has failed us <laughs> but no matter. <laughs> and what editorializing is. Uh I, Maybe I don't know what that word means. It mostly means that I had to scroll to my notes to make sure I got the quote right. I think that, that yes, sure. It was it was a it was a pause for uh, effect is what what's what we'll call it. <laughs> Some kind of effect. Who knows what uh-huh. it is? Um, but, but I, I think, think like it is... the the New Yorker interview talks about that as like a thesis statement yes, for the is. book. Like she she started uh, free food for millionaires with a with a thesis statement. Competence can be a curse, and then the. Mm, talking sure. about what she, what she means by history has failed us. She just says, on a top level, I was arguing that the discipline of history, obviously, and history as a general rule has failed poor people and people who don't have a voice. Yep. She specifically uh, yeah. says in the uh, Weatherhead Institute interview that um, one of the reasons that she shifted the book to be about Sunja is as she was interviewing people about this whole period of history and the Korean experience in Japan, there were all these women uh, who had, you know, contrib- built whole families that were now like part of very successful uh, business ventures or, or whatever she was thinking she was going to be writing about. Um, and Sunja is an example of an illiterate woman who has no social status and like the historical record would never include her as anything mm-hmm. other than a name in a census, maybe. Yeah, and right. So she approaches this novel as an idea and she says this in a in the interview at the back of the novel that like she's very interested in minor characters and minor plot lines because they are kind of the the offshoots of the historical record that don't get represented mm-hmm. and she has decided to like first center this novel on 
someone who is going to be a footnote in an encyclopedia mm-hmm. but that like okay the the grandson of Sunja Mozeshu goes on to be this like billionaire pachinko magnet right mm-hmm. we'll talk about the game of pachinko a little bit later but uh maybe he gets a wikipedia article one day right yeah. his maybe maybe his grandma gets mentioned and she does not have a link you know she doesn't red, get red, she's a red link she's a red link at best Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you know, being a footnote in an encyclopedia, like it's not even a footnote in an encyclopedia. It's like boiled down to a like an archetype or a statistic yes. that is then a footnote in an encyclopedia. Correct. Like it's it's that far removed from having any idea what is going on in her head. So like life. Yeah. that is the central character of the book. And then what she also does throughout the book. And this is, I think, some of the ways in which she is able to deftly explore the diasporic experience and then a couple other character archetypes along the way is she'll bring in like a small character for a scene and then like you get the point that she's trying to achieve and then she moves on and she does she knows she doesn't need that character anymore it's it's Mm -hmm. really effective um and really artful the way that she does it and i'm not surprised that she only publishes one book every 10 years (laughs) 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 um but yeah sunja in the like the opening of the novel, I can see why you wouldn't jump around in the novel because she she is here to tell us that oh that's how I got here is that like the march of history I think is important to the way the book is structured like uh, you want to you the reader in the twenty first century are aware of some like world events that are going to happen right like maybe you mm-hmm. don't know the details of the Japanese occupation of Korea. Or, but you do know about the bombing of Hiroshima and, Nasa- and Nagasaki, and you mm-hmm. do know about the split of North and South Korea, mm-hmm. and you do know about the Cold War and, you know, business interests, you know, growing in Japan and things like that. So I think she's kind of banking on uh, many readers coming to this book with some superficial knowledge of the history. Mm-hmm. And so to put it in chronological order allows her to fill in some very copious blanks in the average reader's knowledge uh, and have it like pinned to major events along sure. the way. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the, the only other like sort of structural or stylistic thing about the show that I wanted to check on yeah. is, so again, we're a subs, not dubs family. We are. <laughs> Sure. And the the you know the nature of the show and the topic it's talking about means that we are dealing with you know there there is some English in the in the 1980s scenes, um and of course there are like expensive needle drops for no reason because it's an Apple TV Plus show so you get yeah. some English through that <laughs> they're just like playing a random Roy Ar- Orbison song or something because you can afford it, <laughs> um but the the subtitles are in a. Like the language is being spoken is a mix of Korean and, and Japanese. Sure. And Korean subtitles are in yellow and Japanese subtitles are in blue. Huh. And the interesting thing in the 1980s scenes is especially a lot of the younger generation will use words or idioms in Japanese when they're speaking sure. you know, mostly Korean. And so so you'll see especially like Solomon talking to his grandmother, Sunjaya, um, saying speaking in Korean with her, but then using Japanese to, to represent like this or that thing. Yeah. Sure. Um, and it's just, just the color coding of it is interesting. I don't know if there's a, a similar way in the, the book, how it's, 
how it's displaying in, in in a shorthand sort of way the like both both the like the the two separate cultures, but then in how in how they're sort of running together as time goes on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that there is quite uh, an analogous thing there. I'm looking for right now as I go through my notes. There are there's discussions of it, but I don't think that there are things on the page that quite evoke what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, that's that's I was just wondering if it was it was addressed at all. Like when, when do when people talk about it, what is it? Like does somebody admonish somebody else about using Japanese phrases or speaking Korean or Japanese One in, of in, in, in a certain context? The the macro level uh take on this within the novel is is kind of the notion and this is something that exists across uh colonial enterprises is like the quote-unquote good version of the oppressed group, right? Like, what Mm -hmm. is a good Korean in Japan? And Mm -hmm. which of the characters in the novel are preoccupied with being a good Korean? Which of the the characters uh, don't care about that at all? Mozeshu is like, he get like, his whole teenage years are just punching people in the face because he does not care about being a quote-unquote good Korean. (laughs) Um, And Noah, the other son of Sunja, um is interested he over the course of the novel decides like i really would prefer it if people don't think of me as korean like he has a mm-hmm. lot of reasons for that yeah um and so the closest i can like my first reaction to what you bring up is when he, we are introduced to him he's eight years old he's going to school and every ethnic korean in japan has like they have their korean family name they have their you know, Japanese Korean name, and then they have their Japanese name that they might be using as well. There's mm-hmm. like three or four different names that they have to know to use in different settings. Sure. And by and large, he is exclusively using his Japanese name at school. Like he is mm-hmm. like not even introducing any to himself to anyone as his Korean name. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Noah actually goes on as an adult to, uh, I do want to, you know, talk about why this happens in the plot, but he goes mm-hmm. on to um, kind of create a second life for himself as a Japanese man in a, in mm-hmm. a different town. And he is exclusively using the Japanese name that was given to him and has a, has a fully different assumed identity and has left his Korean heritage behind. Mm-hmm. So that, that same tension between, uh, I think that's an interesting way that the show is like how do we communicate that tension visually? Yeah, because a show, a show has watching it with subtitles, right? Yeah, a, sh- a show can communicate both more and less information. Yep. Like th- there's more information, and in that is, there is a like there's a visual, visual dimension to yes. it, but there's less information in that you have way less time and. Sp- space in a certain kind of way like space yep, yep. in a letting the story spread out kind of way yep, you know yep, yep like you have less less time and less space to do to do that sort of thing yep yep um yeah it's it's interesting that's an interesting thing to think about because yeah one of the tensions in the book is like what does it even mean to be korean and mm-hmm. That that's not just what does it mean to be korean in japan because over the course of the novel you have okay you have uh, Sunja and her parents and Sunja growing up in occupied Korea, you have this um, practice of young Korean women being like 
off quote unquote offered jobs in China in <sighs> occupied parts of China, mm-hmm. and they're just being you know sold into you know sex slavery for lack of you know for lack of any other nuance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then you have the Korean experience in Japan, and then you have the Korean experience in America briefly, um, and it's just like. There's not a there's not a central through line other than that. It is defined by a whole bunch of other things rooted in the fact that our homeland has changed while we were gone. So like the other the big thing is that like, you know, after World War II, then not only was Japan occupying Korea, but now you have competing Cold War fort like powers. Mm-hmm. Uh helping to separate the country and investing in the country in the in the territories right um and you have the emergence of north and south korea uh and so you have characters in this novel who are like well i want to go back to where i'm from uh and people are like it's not that anymore it is like you don't have a place to go back to and now you're here in japan like the 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 kind of rootless quality of a lot of of a lot of these characters from a heritage perspective, and yet they're grounded in their family and in their relationships and mm-hmm. in the you know the lives that they're trying to lead. So, yeah, that, I mean, that that's on my that was on my list of like this is a book about blank, and it is you know heritage and being uprooted and um, the families that get broken up along the way. So sure, sure, sure. Okay, so that, like that's all. My, I think that's all my stuff from the show. Okay, so just like talk. You said you you said high level. Your review was I liked it. Oh yeah, tell me more about what you liked. Oh great. Um, from a plotting perspective, and I I mean plotting with T's, not plotting with D's. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a gripping book. It moves really well, and one of the things that she does, which if I boil it down, it's going to sound like it's cheap, and it's not. I don't think it's cheap the way that she mm-hmm. does this. Mm-hmm. But she deploys time very well. And some mm-hmm. of that is on chapter breaks. It's like, oh, wow, we're skipping eight years. Oh, wow, we are, uh, we're, we're in the same year, so we're going to roll back. You know, she doesn't actually, to your point about the structure of the novel, there's only a few spots where she has to kind of double back and account for what another character was doing during a period of time that's largely mm-hmm. confined to uh, Noah and a little bit of Hanzu, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, largely, she can just keep the novel moving forward. But so there's some chapter breaks where it's like, oh, wow, oh, oh somebody aged eight years. Okay, whoa, mm-hmm. whoa, whoa, whoa. But mm-hmm. the other thing that she'll do is like, between two paragraphs, she will just, you know slam through time so i'm just gonna tell i'm gonna tell you about uh sunja's dad dying here tell me about the time slamming um there's a lot about her father huni like he has a cleft palate and he has um another like you know uh foot issue that leads him to be somebody who is like not desirable for marriage conventionally, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Ultimately, his parents kind of create a successful business. So then when times are tough, they are actually, you know, somebody who a matchmaker is interested in and yada, 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 he gets married. 
and they try to have kids for a while. It's not working, and then finally they have Sunja. Few fathers in the world treasured their daughters as much as Huni, who seemed to live to make his child smile. In the winter when Sunja was 13 years old, Huni died quietly from tuberculosis. At his burial, Yangjin and her daughter were inconsolable. The next morning, the young widow rose from her pallet and returned to work. Okay. <laughs> like, Lee is very deft at passages like that where she describes how hard someone worked to get to a point in their life, um, what they are doing to kind of savor or really just live in that moment in their life. Mm -hmm. And then we'll like within a sentence jump the, the, the requisite amount of time to the next tragedy in their life, not dwell in the tragedy Right, because you move yes, on. because you you literally can't. And I laugh because, like, oh, like, okay, okay I guess, like, yeah, yeah, like, wow, yeah. You laugh the, because there's there's like nothing else to do about. I don't know he, human grief being. She's very disposed good. of in that way. Yeah, she's very good at grief. There's a later Dispo- disposed of out of necessity. Yes, because like yes. there's there's no other way to to do this other and, than to just not not grieve like not stop Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know for a novel that's going to span 79 years you have to know that there's going to be characters that pass away and and people lose other people in their lives and so she she does that trick if i can call it a trick which seems reductive about two or three times in the novel it's effective every time but she does the like people achieved the thing they wanted sadness arrived later (laughs) like yeah she does that I see. I, I I understand why you use use trick because it can't like if deployed unskillfully can feel like artificial or manipulative yes. or, or unearned. If that was yeah. the only thing this novel were doing, it would feel very cheap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, it's doing other things. One of the other things that she gets away that not she gets away with again. <laughs> um, one of the other things she's skilled at rather is she will use grief and then unpack it in an interesting way so like mm-hmm. um the the young boy solomon who's of the last generation that we meet in the book who i think it is really interesting you've described the novel as like it really kind of um balancing sunja and solomon with uh, the the show rather mm-hmm. which i think the novel might be doing but in my read of it like sunja and solomon didn't spend a lot of time together so it's kind of fascinating to I'm eager to go watch the show and see how those story. Yeah, because the first the first episode makes sure to to get them kind of equated, know, intera- interacting yeah. in the same room at least, yeah. like by by around the halfway point. Now, I, again, having only seen the the first episode, I can't talk about whether that continues, but it, sure. it seems like it's being set up to to play out that way. That's cool. Um, mm-hmm. So when uh, Solomon's mom dies. Uh, you can you can see that it's going to happen. I, I won't talk about specifics, but you can see that that might happen. And we get a scene from her funeral, and she had always wanted to go to America. And it's kind of a, like, what if... She's ethnic Korean, and she's like, what if we get out of this situation in Japan? Her husband, who is one of Sunja's son, uh, Mozeshu, is like, eh, I've got a thing going here in Japan, like... I don't I don't know that I want to go, but that's kind of where we leave them until she passes away. 
and you get this scene from the funeral when the mourners wept at the sight of the little boy this is a uh, little boy being solomon in the black suit solomon would say don't cry he calmed one hysterical woman by telling her mama is in california when the mourner looked puzzled neither solomon nor Moseshu explained what this meant paragraph break he had never taken her there they'd meant to go and then you get this like really moving unpacking of Yumi's desire to go to America, mm-hmm. the tension between her and Mozeshu and their marriage, and just like she's, it, it it was really unexpected. And then in the moment, like, of course she would do that. Of I didn't know about this conflict, and she found a perfect place to put it, which was actually after Yumi was gone, and we get this like really moving portrait of her son first, and then we get the like whole thing. It's just she's. The book good. I just need to reiterate. <laughs> book, book good. The book good. <laughs> um, but the the other like through line of the novel from a plot perspective that I have not talked about yet, mm-hmm. um, and I, it sounds like this is not in the first episode of the TV show, mm-hmm. is that Sunja, uh, after her father passes away, she grows up a little bit. She's helping her mom run this like boarding house in Korea. Mm-hmm. And when she's going to market, she meets this guy named Kohansu. And he has, like, he is ethnic Korean, but he has kind of a mix of Japanese and Western energy. And he So is... you do you do get just a hint of this in the, Ooh, at the very okay. end of the first episode where Sunja is, is walking through a market, sort of interacting with people. And then there's this other new hotshot who you don't know yet, who's clearly meant to, to seem like a hotshot because he is... Oh Korean, yeah, but also he's wearing this like dapper white suit and a hat. Yes, yeah, and, and I, yes, mm-hmm. they strike up a relationship. He is ways older than her, and they start meeting uh, surreptitiously, and then on a mushroom foraging expedition. Uh, that sounds like a euphemism for something. Well, I, I'm not, it, I don't know what. Yes, <laughs> no, but then he does sexually assault her. Oh, rad, cool. And she's young enough that she like doesn't like it, but does like the relationship that she has with this older man mm-hmm. who is interested in her. And so the relationship continues. Uh, the sex continues, even though he is clearly taking advantage of her and exploiting her. Yeah. Uh, she becomes pregnant and he tells her this or she tells him this and he's like, ah, snap, I am married uh, and that's why I have the job that I have so I can't uh, stop that. But I would buy you a house so you could live here and be my mistress and raise my son. And she's like, no, thank you. Uh huh. And so her kind of life then spins in a different direction where this priest, uh, Isaac Beck, who her and her mother had, you know, uh, helped recover from about, you know, from a recent ill bout during his, like, he has tuberculosis, and so it cropped back up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, I will marry this young girl. I will be the father to her child. I'm going to Osaka to be to live with my brother. Um, so I will, like, kind of legitimize her and this child and, that that is what takes her out of Korea and to Japan and kind of where the rest of her life goes. Mm-hmm. We meet Isak's brother, Yosub. He's a very prideful man. He's got a job in a factory. He's trying to provide for his family. Isak gets arrested under some like specious charges of being religious 
being like Protestant Christian during the time of the emperor and like you should be worshiping the emperor and not be praying to God kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sunja takes this job with her sister-in-law uh, selling kimchi and then ultimately they get recruited into a restaurant and they're working for this guy in a restaurant. Everything seems cool. Oh, wouldn't you know, Hansu owns the restaurant, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And oh also, Hanzu owns the loan shark who got uh, Isak's brother in trouble. Not oh, <laughs> Hansu has been kind of, with his Yakuza connections, orchestrating their life a bit. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Because her son, Noah, is Hansu's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mosesu is actually Isak's son, so they're half brothers, and that's like the two of them are the back half of the novel until it gets to Solomon. Um, but like Hansu's like shadow role in their life and like what choices they have and have not been afforded by first the occupation of Japan and then like decisions made by Hansu, who is very invested in his son, but you know, is not an active part of his life, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, that, th- I think that gets at the central metaphor of the novel, which is the pachinko game. Yeah, I was going to say, like, before we, before we wrap we up, to talk we do need it. to talk about the, ga- the game pachinko, <laughs> which yes. I did. I did some research on it because I was, like, kind of aware of it but didn't know uh, anything about it, like, specifically. Um. I don't. So this is like an arcade slash gambling game that is essentially in Japan. It is what slot machines are in the U.S. I don't. I don't love to quote directly from Wikipedia for research stuff. Sure, but it's phrased well there. Pachinko feels a niche and in Japanese gambling comparable to that of a slot machine in the West as a form of low stakes, low strategy gambling. When you look at it, it looks. You know, I grew up watching a lot of Prices Right, Mm -hmm. and I watch a lot of the game Plinko where you drop a disc down a, a big board of pegs and it's trying yeah. to land in a specific spot. Mm-hmm. If you look, if you watch Pachinko being played, it looks sort of like that. It also reminds one of like pinball without the flippers. Yes. So uh, this is from, this is all from jrpass.com, which is, I think is a, is a, like a, a pass that you can buy in Japan that okay. gives, gives tourists access to a lot of things. Uh, they say the easiest way to describe the game is that it's a cross between pinball and slot machines that relies on both skill and luck to win. Players launch balls around a special pachinko machine trying to win more and more balls, which they can then either keep playing with or hand in for their winnings. Uh, the skill in pachinko comes from knowing just how hard to launch the ball in the machine to find the path to these pockets, but then there's the element of chance as well, as each ball in the right pocket triggers a slot machine, which determines how many additional balls you win. Uh, the name doesn't mean anything. It's just automatopoeia based on the sounds the balls make, okay. which rules. Cool. Uh, so so I, I assume this is where the metaphor comes in. Sure. So let me talk about it. You cannot, in, in Japan, gambling's illegal. You can't yes. gamble for money. Yep. And you also can't take the pachinko balls that you win out of pachinko parlors. But there is a loophole uh, where the balls that you win from the machines can be exchanged in the pachinko parlor for tokens. Then you can take those tokens to a a separate, but closely affiliated location where they will change the tokens in for money. Mm -hmm. And then the tokens are sold back to the pachinko parlor. 
And so you have this weird, like gambling is illegal, but like, here's a way to do it. Yep. yep. Sort of system. Um, and I, 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 I would assume that that like quasi legality and, and maybe the, yeah, I don't know, something about that seems like it would be a metaphor in a book like that. It, that's <laughs> some of it. it. That's interesting. I had not zeroed in. I, I obviously thought that that, I, of course, thought that that part of it was interesting, the like mm-hmm. the trading for money to get around the law thing. Um, to me, so like the, the Pachinko thing factors literally into the back half of the book because Mozeshu, one of Sunja's son, sons, ends up working for a Pachinko guy and then becomes this like billionaire Pachinko magnet. Um, and the history of Pachinko in Japan is that because it is a gambling enterprise, it is actually like it is not respectable work. Yeah, right? right. And then like for a long time and possibly still it was like deeply infiltrated by like Yakuza yep, and yep. It, like yeah, it's not a not a job that people are proud of, I guess. And, and so this is this is how it's portrayed in the show too. Yep, yep. Yeah. And so it and so it is a an industry where Koreans who are looked, you know, Korean Japanese are looked down on, who are looked down on can get work in this industry because uh, Japanese folks don't want to work in it. Um, and so that's how Mozeshu makes all his money. And then Noah also goes into the pachinko industry when he is like down on his luck and pretending to be a Japanese guy. Um, there is a scene early on when Mozeshu is working in the pachinko industry. His boss, Goro, is working on the machines at the beginning of the day. So I'm going to read this passage because I think this gets to what I read as like some of the metaphor here. Okay, sure. Each day before the store opened, Goro would gently tap a few straight pins on the vertical pachinko machines with his tiny rubber-coated hammer. He was tapping the pins very, very slightly to alter the course of the metal balls to affect the machine's payout. You never knew which machine Goro would choose or which direction Goro would direct the pins. There were other pachinko parlors in the area that had decent businesses, but Goro was the most successful because he had a kind of a touch, a true feel for the pins. Minuscule adjustments he made were sufficiently frustrating to the regular customers who studied the machines before closing hours for better payouts in the morning, yet there was just enough predictability to produce attractive windfalls, drawing the customers back to try their luck again and again. Goro was teaching Mozeshu how to tap the pins, and for the first time in his life, Mozeshu had been told that he was a good student. So, and and later on, it like ta- it talks about uh, pachinko being this like game of chance uh, relative to life, or or something like yeah. that. Um, That's neat though, because you you wouldn't, of course, for your regulars, you would not want everybody to like. You wouldn't want word to get out that like the one in the back corner is the good one. Second from the right is the one that pays out more. Exactly, yeah. but mm-hmm. he does want ones that like maybe pay out a little bit more. Yeah, or, yeah, you gotta you gotta keep the myth going. Yeah, and so the for me, pachinko in this book as a metaphor is that like there are choices available to you or consequences for your actions that are not in your control they are not wholly random chance though there are other people who are making those decisions or otherwise affecting your life so like Mm -hmm. the thing where sunja has finally found a way to help her family so one of the reasons that they wind up working in this restaurant is because isak's brother 
was at was in Nagasaki when the bomb dropped, and so Oops. he is like, Uh-oh. you know, horribly burned and you know can't work. Um, you know, Isak got arrested and then he later died, and so like they are now working in this restaurant. Oh no, the the bombing happens after the restaurant, I guess, but they they're there because you know they're on hard times. But then Hanzu is revealed as like the orchestrator of that whole thing, mm-hmm. in the same way that like the Korean experience for the Korean characters in this book is dictated by laws of Japanese government, by practices in Japanese culture, by racism, by Japanese characters. Mm -hmm. Um, Noah only finds out about his true heritage. Like he spends the whole book not knowing that Hanzu is his dad. Um, He finds out about it because he's dating this Japanese girl who's like, my parents are super racist, but I'm not because I'm sleeping with a Korean boy. Sure. And she like stomps her way into a meeting between Noah and Hanzu, doesn't like how it goes, and then immediately is like, yo, that's your dad, right? He's a Yakuza. And Noah Mm -hmm. loses his mind because Mm -hmm. no one has ever told him this. Mm -hmm. And the fact that his dad is so, you know dishonorable and all of that just kind of shakes him to his core sure and so there are things at play that you are not in control of and yet you must play the game is like kind of the central metaphor of the novel and then i also i use that that example of um akiko who is the 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 girlfriend that noah has at university as an example of how uh lee really likes minor characters and like uses them to Let's have a character who really embodies this like kind of well-meaning Japanese character who isn't in, who doesn't think they're racist but they are mm-hmm. and but also they spur the action forward. And so we never need to have that character ever again in the novel because she's created things that live past her sort of, you know, sort of stuff in the action. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um similarly there's a character at the end Solomon's girlfriend Phoebe who is Korean American. And so when Solomon moves there with her and she witnesses how the Japanese treat Koreans, she's like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and it creates a whole bunch of tension that, that is very interesting. Yeah. Um, but Lee is like, I don't need to center those characters in the novel. Mm-hmm. Sunja is the focus. Sunja's relationship to her family. Sunja's relationship to Korea. Um, that is the focus of the novel. So Sure. Yeah, I, and I think that to to hear Lee tell it, that's like a thing she learned over thirty years. <laughs> it's like yeah. where she wanted to put the the heart of the thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, seems th- like she was successful. It I seems mean, like it. You know, slow and steady wins a race. Yeah, and all. You know, and I'm. It's some people. Some people succeed in their life by publishing a book every six months, and some people succeed in their life by publishing a book every ten years. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that there's room for both of those things because I have I have enjoyed and not enjoyed both both kinds of book. <laughs> I think I would say, yes, I have as well. This book rules. There's a whole bunch of stuff in it that I didn't get to talk about, um, but that's just uh, a challenge that you should go read it, listener. Go read it. Yeah, or watch the show, or do or both. Watch the show, whatever. I'm not in charge of you, or am I? Except uh, subs not dubs. Yeah, well, subs not dubs. In that in that way, we are in charge of you. <laughs> We will come to your house. We will come to your house and we will alter the captioning settings on your television and we won't tell you what we did so you'll never be able to alter it again. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, If you did already read Pachinko or watch the show and you want to write to us, tell us what you think or ask us questions, 
you can do so overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at overduepod. We're we're embracing the blue sky. We're starting to express ourselves via threads. Uh-huh. Find us on these new and novel services. Yeah. And maybe not on Twitter, which is bad. Maybe not on that one. Find us on Twitter so that you can f- easily follow <laughs> our links that we've posted <laughs> to our other social yeah. fronts. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our website. There it is. That's it. It's got links to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Uh, next week, we are both reading a very special, very sexy book called Her Night with Santa Yeah. by Adriana Herrera. Mm-hmm. Actually, don't know how sexy it's going to be yet because I haven't cracked a spine on this bad boy. But I, I, have, I am assured that it will fit well within the tradition of our horny holidays, happy horny days, horny days, horny yeah. Honda days episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash pod. If you want to keep, if you want more of this to hit your ears, yeah. is a great way to support the show financially. Mm-hmm. You can get access to bonus episodes early. We are already. Uh, not I would say deep, but we are we have embarked upon our long read of Emily Wilson's The Iliad translation yeah, for our Stop Homer Time episodes. We're having a good time with that, and then we're also going to uh, we're, we're streaming her night with Santa. Right, that's happening. No, no, that's oh, a regular main feed episode. Oh yes, we're streaming the what's the other one? We're the Snow Queen mm-hmm. by Hans Christian Andersen. It's what they say they were inspired by for the film Frozen. I can't wait to read this Hans Christian Andersen book about this talking snowman named Olaf. Yep, that's exactly what it is. That's what yeah. they took. Everything mm-hmm. else was made up by Disney, but they yeah. the, Olaf is what Hans Christian Olaf is, is, yes. The Snow Queen is like in it at the end, and most of it's about Olaf, yeah. is my understanding. Mm-hmm. So, so join us for that. We are doing that, um, what is that, Friday the 29th? Uh, yes. So if you join us at the sufficient tier on patreon.com slash pod, you can join us for the live stream on December 29th. Uh, and then other Patreon supporters will get that early, all that good stuff. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, next week, Her Night with Santa. Can't wait. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.